Throughout the churches of the Nazarene, of which we are one, uh, today is called NTS Sunday. NTS is Nazarene Theological Seminary, one of several seminaries across the globe. It's the one here in the U.S., located in Kansas City, dedicated to preparing not just uh, Nazarene ministers, but also um, uh, many people throughout other denominations and other professions who are interested in getting a theological grounding in what we call the Wesleyan holiness tradition, which is what surrounds all of us in the Church of the Nazarene and other similar denominations. Um, and so some churches are taking time to pray. Other churches are receiving an offering. Uh, this past um, fall, I was able to spend some time there. We have several of our um, pastors, Pastor Chris being one of them, and others who have spent time there as students and have graduated from there. And um, we know some of the administration and faculty very well. And so I asked, this being NTS Sunday, I asked the current president how we could pray for the university or for the seminary. And so I invite you to pray with me in some very specific ways as we think of uh, the importance of this um, school of theology in our, in our community. So would you pray with me now? God, as we uh, survey the landscape of debate, both within the church and outside of the church, we are reminded again and again how essential it is to have really good theology. Not theology that makes us feel um, better than others, but theology that helps us know you well and live well in our world. And we see this as essential work in order for your church to fully be your church. And so we pray for Dr. Jaron Rao and all of the faculty of Nazarene Theological Seminary who dedicate themselves to living the way of Jesus and helping others live that out and preach that out and lead that out. We pray specifically with them as they are filling a key faculty position this coming semester. And they are asking you for provision of the right person that will lead their students well into the future. And we pray, Lord, that you would be the one to guide both the incoming applicants and also those who are searching and interviewing, guide just the right person. And secondly, we uh, can only imagine the weight of responsibility that the faculty and administration feel when they ask us to pray that they would have wisdom as they endeavor to lead and shape a new generation of leaders for a culture that is changing so rapidly. Grant them wisdom to keep in pace with your spirit, Holy One. Help them as they guide classroom conversations and as they um, help students see their own lives in light of your word. We all have such great hopes and dreams for who your church can be. It's summarized in our prayer, your kingdom come and your will be done. 
would you raise up your church to be a part of your coming kingdom? And on this day, we ask that you would use and empower the people of Nazarene Theological Seminary to do just that. As we continue in worship, Lord, we ask that you would receive our offering of time. We have come here expectantly. We are hungry and thirsty for what we cannot provide ourselves. And we ask that you would give us the grace to be open to receiving what it is you have to offer us this evening. Help us to have eyes and ears and hearts that are open and willing to obey. We pray this in the name and spirit of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, good evening to you. I want to greet you in the strong and the powerful name of our Lord Jesus Christ. My name is Chris. I get to be one of the pastors. And uh, we are in the season of Epiphany. It is the season of expectation, the season of astonishment. And so I, I don't know if it's appropriate for me to ask you this, but I'm going to invite you anyway. Be on the edge of your seat to what you might hear and expect something from our God tonight. So uh, I have some ushers that have Bibles, and uh, I want to invite you to turn your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, somebody would love to bring you a Bible. Just raise your hand. I'm going to be reading out of the New Living Translation. Maybe we have some takers. Maybe we don't. It might be a good offer for you to know that, hey, you can have this as your gift if you would like. We have Bibles in both English and Spanish, for those of you whose heart language is Spanish or you're just practicing your Spanish, or I invite you, even if you turn your Bibles to your uh, phone or iPad or tablet or whatever the case may be. But we have been in the Sermon of the Mount, on the Mount, first in the Beatitudes, and then my friend and our friend Stephanie Rowinski was here last week. And so I want to invite you to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 21, and we're going to read to verse 26. And here at our church, we honor God's word by standing, so I invite you to do that now. And I invite you to hear the word of the Lord from the greatest sermon that was ever preached. So if you have heard it as said, you have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say to you, even if you are angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, or a fool, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in in danger of the fires of hell. So if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple, and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. When you are on the way to court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to an officer and you will be thrown into prison. And if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you have paid the last penny. Jesus also teaches about adultery. He teaches about divorce and he teaches about us keeping our word. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say together, Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So I've got two stories for you. Story number one is this. A few years ago, I gave a sermon that offended someone. 
I mean, I really offended them. I thought I was preaching the biblical text and being really faithful to it. I thought I was calling our congregation to live faithfully as I thought the text was requiring us, but but I offended. And what I said made them mad. It was more than anger. It was being mad. And I've learned that when someone gets mad, it's actually hurt in disguise. And I really hurt that person. The thing was, I had no idea that I had offended. I, I had offended. I had no idea that they were mad. So some time went by, and I hadn't seen them in church for a while, and I wasn't sure if they were on vacation or if they were sick or or if they had to work. So I gave them a phone call, and the phone and, and the phone conversation went something like this: "Hey, what's going on? How are you? I've missed seeing you around. You doing okay?" The response was, I'm fine. I said, really? You don't sound fine. Then I heard, maybe because I'm not. And I just don't know if I can keep coming back to church. What do we do when we've offended someone? I think that's what Jesus is speaking about. How do we, how do we deal with that? Because if we don't tread lightly, offense leads to anger, and anger can get out of control, and, and it can take our spirit and our, our actions and directions that we would have never considered before. The offense spreads like wildfire. It can get out of control quickly. Offended people patronize, they gossip, they seek out revenge, they harbor bad feelings. And I think that's why Jesus, this happens so common, it happens so often, so I think that that's why Jesus gives commentary to these issues in the Sermon on Mount. He talks about things like murder and adultery and divorce and taking oaths. Because offended people hate, they get divorced, they start looking for something new, they make promises that they don't mean. Sometimes the offense is domesticated and it it's just revealed right there in home. Sometimes the offense is global and it shows up on a wide political spectrum and a trail. Sometimes an offense leads to violence, but here's what we know. It always, always, always spreads. N.T. Wright reminds us that part of the problem with this is that people who get offended, hurt, mad, they take their, they take their anger and their hurt back home. He says, the executive whose boss has shouted at him goes back to his office and shouts at his secretary. The secretary goes home and shouts at the children. The children shout at the cat. We know it spreads. That's story number one. Story number two goes like this. As a young youth pastor, I was about, I don't know, 25 years old, and I was on a course to change the world. I had just finished seminary, the seminary that you all prayed for. I had a diploma in my wall that said I was smart, and I found myself in a, in a really good job, but I found myself in a spot where I, was, I thought I was doing a good job, but I wasn't. I was blinded by ambition and excitement, and things were falling through the cracks. I was a failure at communicating I put off this air of arrogance, and as a youth pastor, I, I held parenting seminars for those parents who didn't seem to know what they were doing. 
My thought was this, that if these parents would just do what I would do because I learned about how to parent by reading books, these kids would not have all these problems. Yeah. I now parent teenagers. I know that that is exactly the opposite. You know how it feels if you're a parent to get coached by the person on parenting that's never raised kids before. That's what I was doing. So one day a mom comes into my office and she says, you know, I think you, I think you think you're doing a good job. But honestly, the other parents have been talking and it seems that you can use my help. I got mad. You know, anger is just hurt in disguise. I was mad. And I I think we asked the question, what do we do when we get offended? How do we handle ourselves? How do we wrestle through the complexity of relationships when it, when all it takes is a few words and we're, we're wiped out? I thought, how dare she? All I know now is that I was insecure and I was easily injured and I wanted to run that woman out of my office. It did not take very much at all, but boy, in that moment, I hated her. And, and I think that little moment of honesty actually reveals who I was and maybe it reveals who we, who we all are, which is maybe the reason why Jesus felt the need to address this and address this so early on in his sermon. Because honestly, humans have a way of being beastly to one another. And it's happened for generations. People have gone to blows because of words or actions, or even just maybe it's just perceptions. One person takes aim at another for something that was said and done, whether it was on purpose or not. From backstabbing and and gossip to all-out war, the offended have to find a way to respond when they are offended. And the whole thing, Jesus seems to imply, starts in the heart, of a person. I think that's why years before Jesus made his way onto the scene, it was Moses and his law, what we have in the Old Testament, that spoke to this problem. Moses' solution to the whole thing was this simple statement, do not kill. I put an arrow right there. You can see it's in bold letters. It was written in stone at one point. It's now in the Ark of the Covenant. Indiana Jones found it. Now it's lost again. But it's there. And you can read it in the Bibles that we were going to pass out to you. Even then, way, 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 way back then, Moses knew that anger unbridled could lead to an awful end result. And from the most ancient of days, people realized that really simple offenses can get out of control and can lead to murder. And and it happens really quickly. And in a world that is really cheap about life, this, this ancient law was trying to just tame some situations that were getting out of control so quickly. Because way back in the day, even Moses realized that this is a vicious cycle. You hurt me, I have to hurt you a little bit more. You hurt me a little bit more than I hurt you, and you do it by hurting someone I love. You hurt someone I love, you're dead. I mean, that's the way it goes. Offense is the starting point, and if it's not taken care of quickly, violence comes soon. And if you don't believe me, just ask the basketball players from the University of Kansas and Kansas State University. 
Some of you may have seen a huge brawl on TV just about four days ago. It didn't take much at all. And so the Mosaic text tries to, the Mosaic text, which we read in the Old Testament, tries to prevent the end of anger from, uh, prevent the end of anger or the result of anger, which is murder, from ever happening by just simply prohibiting it. Do not murder, the sixth commandment says. Sometimes that's the best we can do, simply not murdering somebody. That's the best we can do, right? I mean, they've pushed us to the end. Thank you, Amari. That's the best we can do, right? Until Jesus. Because Jesus the rabbi gives new commentary to this command. And he says, you've heard it said, do not murder. You've heard Moses say this before, don't murder. But I'm telling you, do what you can do to reconcile. Do whatever you can do to make friends. Now, scholars call this part of the Sermon on the Mount, verses 21 through 37, the antitheses. Six times Jesus said, now you heard it said, but I'm telling you. And then he gives commentary about being offended or anger or adultery or divorce or keeping your word. And antithesis is probably a poor name for this because it infers that Jesus is actually taking the Mosaic law and he's replacing it with his new law. But Matthew, the gospel writer, is insistent that Jesus isn't, he isn't replacing the old law. What he's actually doing is he's fulfilling it. He's taking the law that Moses wrote down so long ago and he's, he's like filling in the cracks. He's showing everybody a new side of it. He's making it more robust. He's giving us a deeper knowledge and he is inviting us into a new reality that we call the kingdom of God. He's teaching us about life in the new kingdom that he says is a kingdom of healing. And in the new kingdom, this, this is mind-blowing. In the new kingdom, God cares about our relationships. That's the long and short of the kingdom, of of this new kingdom. It's the long and short of it. God cares about relationships. And it's quite an amazing thing if you really think about about it. Now, I've heard most of my life that God cares about relationships. I've heard that in Sunday school, on Wednesday night youth group. I heard that even in college chapels and in camps. God cares about relationships. But you think about it, not until Jesus, it wasn't until Jesus that anyone had really heard that before. Think about this, historically, the gods that we studied in school really had no concern for relationships. The philosophers spoke of God as an unmoved mover. God wasn't, he wasn't to offer anything except for his divine will that was set in place. The Greek, uh, Greek mythology spoke of the gods that didn't care about human beings but despised them. These gods disdained human beings, always using humans as their playthings. So anger, revenge, hostility, bloodshed, those were all events that were played out. These were divine events that seemed to be played out among people. And the gods opposed one another, always at war with one another. And so... It played out here in everyday life on planet Earth. Or the gods of Eastern religions who understood, quote, God is simply a spiritual guide who was the director of divine karma. 
These gods are unlike the gods, the God of the scriptures. Jesus reveals to us that this God cares about relationships. God cares about what happens to the offended and the offender. In fact, according to Jesus, maybe our relationships among one another is the very most important thing to God. David Luce says, all the hyperbole that we read in the Sermon on the Mount, like the cutting off of body parts and the burning in hell, all that stuff maybe just serves to magnify just just important our relationships are to this God. And maybe that's why Jesus is so quick to address it. He says, yeah, 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 yeah. You've heard that it was said, don't murder. But that's, that's, not, that's not exactly the point. You can avoid murder and still want murder, and you can still hate even if you haven't murdered. Nothing in your heart has changed. And it actually gets us nowhere. To, to be offended when we're offended is to is to take a position of superiority over the one who has offended. When you're offended, you actually see yourself above the other. And according to one of my favorite saints, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he says, even the derogatory words that we speak out against our brother or sister place us above them. And then we're standing on a pedestal where we value our own lives more than we value his or hers. And in the end, the result becomes we seek to hit or hurt or destroy. The, the one who publicly insults or slanders is one who then puts a barrier between himself and his brother or sister or herself and her sister or brother. And when we do that, we erect a barrier between ourselves and a God who is interested in our relationships. Which is really Incredible, considering the first confession of the early witnesses of Jesus. They, they said about Him when they saw Him and they heard Him teach, they said this about Him. God is not above us. God is with us. God is with us. That's incredible. Theologians call this the incarnation. In Jesus, God is fully human. And the incarnation, being human, means that God is not above those that the other gods are. God is among us in Jesus. And in Jesus, God has His feet on the ground. Because on the ground is where real humans live. We live with our feet on the ground. Not above one another. It's like Jesus is saying... There is not one human that is better than another. And we should all recognize it. I felt really sick this afternoon when my son Watson told me about the death of Kobe Bryant, the legendary Lakers basketball player. You probably saw this on Twitter in the news. He and I are the same age. His death is a reminder that we all die, and the outcry of his death is a reminder that Not only is his life valuable, but my life is valuable and your life is valuable too. According to the greatest theologian, I think, of the 20th century, Karl Barth, he says this, that Jesus, who is God, is not only human, but he teaches us and empowers us to be fully human as well. To see the humanity in one another. 
And we experience the fullness of what it means to be human when our efforts are put forth to, to stay on the same playing field, to see one another at the same level, and to work in order to make our relationships right. We should be quick to make things right with our brother or sister who have offended or who we have offended, not just because we want to avoid judgment, but reconciling with our brother or sister comes as a humbling, even humiliating act. And in doing so, that just might make it a means of grace. In other words, doing something like that, like making it right with our brother or sister whom we have offended or maybe who have offended us, it could be good for us. Another way to say it is, just might be healthy for us. You know, people who attend Alcoholics Anonymous, they know this. Steps 8 through 10 in the 12-step program have to do with reconciling with others. They know it's healing. Number 8, make a list of all persons we've harmed and become willing to make amends with them all. Number 9, make direct amends to such people wherever possible except when to do so would injure them or others. Number 10, continue to take a personal inventory when, when we're wrong and promptly admit it. Bonhoeffer says what people in the 12-step program already know. It's in grace that we're allowed to please our brother. A plain reading of the law of Moses keeps people from killing one another. But Jesus' interpretation and then his help, which we get in full measure, allows us to experience the full measure of God's grace. We become right with God when we make efforts to be right with others. And here's the key. God helps us. We are graced with the power to go make it right with somebody else. Bonhoeffer says we're graced by God to pay our debt to him or her. It's in grace that we are, we're allowed to become reconciled. <clears throat> Excuse me. Relationships are extremely important to God. And that's why I think that Jesus speaks in extremes. He's like he says, go the extra mile to make it right with your brother or sister. Do what you have to do to reconcile. Do what you have to do to make friends. In fact, that's the most important thing. It's more important even than your worship of God. So Jesus says, so if, you've, if you come to worship even from miles and miles away to make your sacrifice, and you come to the place of worship and you remember an offense... I want you to leave that place of worship and the original language implies disrupt the worship service. Jesus gives you permission to disrupt this place. I want you to disrupt the worship service and I want you to go make it right. And that, he says, is the only true sacrifice and the only real worship that God wants. So, I told you about a story. And I asked the question, what do we do when we get offended? How do we handle ourselves? How do we wrestle with the complexity of relationships when, when all it takes is a few words and we're wiped out? How dare that woman say those things to me? Well, that mom came into my office. And uh, this is a true story. 
She said that line about 15 minutes before church started one Sunday. It was right before we were supposed to go worship together. And wouldn't you know it? I mean, this is the honest to goodness truth. Wouldn't you know it? The sermon that day was about forgiveness. Ugh. With a line, she crushed my pride, and while she told me the truth, I was humiliated. But I'll tell you, I heard God in that time of worship more clearly than I have ever heard God before. Old school churchgoers call it being under the weight of conviction. I don't know what you call it, but I just knew that I had to let it go. But I'll tell you honestly, I couldn't. It just was a phrase, and I was damaged, and I wanted to damage her. And I just knew that I needed to reconcile. I needed to make friends, but I didn't want to. So I remember praying this little prayer, God, making this right is something I can't do on my own. I need your help. And God graced me with his power. And in those few short moments, I experienced grace and all the measure that I needed. And, and one of the most, it, it has become one of the most significant moments in my ministry career, providing lessons for me each year, time and time and time again, for nearly 20 years. I was reconciled with, with my sister and I was gifted by grace. We asked that question, what is it that we do when we get offended? But we also ask the other question. What is it that we do when we've offended? How do we, how do we deal with that? Well, I called my friend. This is the first story. I called my friend, not knowing that I had offended. And I was hurt and shocked that I had done something so egregious that they were leaving church. So you know what we did? We met at a table. I mean, we literally met at a table. And I think that that's what Jesus knew. I think Jesus knew what he was doing when he said, let's all meet at a table together. So I went to that person's house and we sat at the dinner table. We sat there for several hours. We shared some food and I heard how I had offended. And I, had heard, I got to hear how my words were translated and how they were heard. And they were sharp words. So sharp, in fact, that... Then my friend said, I was so mad that night that I had to leave worship. I could not even take communion, he said. And then that's when I could hear these words of Jesus, this word, these words in the passage, I could hear them in my own mind. He had to leave the worship service. And I could hear Jesus' words, leave the worship service when there is an offense and make it right. So I called him by name and I said, you are one of my most important friends. We have traveled together. We have laughed. We have cried together. We have buried loved ones together. We've shared secrets. We've shared meals. We love each other. Please, please, please. I cannot be the barrier between you and the communion table. If I have ever offended Know that it is not on purpose. And then I continued, please, if I ever do it again, please come to me. Stop the service. Don't let me make my, come and make my sacrifice if you and I are not good. 
And if you, if you stop the service, we'll stand there in, right in the front, in front of God and everyone, and we'll hash it out and take as long as, we, as long as it takes so that we both can come to the table and receive the full measure of what God has done for us and what he wants to offer us. And it was there at a dinner table that we understood one another and that we were made right. I tried to do there in that night my part in reconciling. But these relationships that we have are really complicated. And we live in a really complicated world. And so we ask these questions with the mixture of relationships that we have. We ask the question, how is it that, that we should respond to what we've heard in Jesus' words? Well, Jesus' words are hard as we try to live them out in this really complicated world. But you know what's interesting about the Sermon on the Mount? It's like Jesus just says them. And then he leaves them out there. And the implication is this, that by his Spirit, he has the power to grace us and invite us into grace so that we can at least do our part in what is needed to reconcile with our brothers and sisters. It's like Jesus leaves it out there, implying that his spirit will give us the wisdom as we live in community to make sure that we are willing to do our part to reconcile, to make friends again. And how they, the offended, responds to that is up to them. The relationships that we have with one another are important to God. So I want to pray for us, and I want to offer some words of sacrifice. And I don't know your situations. I don't know the relationships that you have. I don't know how you harbor anger, or you have created anger in another. But I'm going to leave that to the voice and the power of Jesus, who calls us into right relationship with God and in right relationship with one another. I'm going to leave that up to him to lead each one of us individually into his way. And I'm going to leave it up to him to help us trust that his way is the new, the better, the unexpected kind of healing that is offered to us. So let me pray for us. God, uh, the ancient law are your words, and then Jesus has filled in the cracks for us. He has fulfilled it. He has made it more robust. And now, by your spirit, you have the power to speak to us about our own relationships. And so we ask these questions, questions that are going to be on the wall in this time of prayer. I invite you to look at these questions as we pray together. Do I carry any kind of resentment? Do I harbor anger? Or do I feel fresh the hurt that has come from someone offending me? Spirit of the living God, we invite you to speak to us about how we reconcile and make friends and walk in obedience in any way you choose. Maybe we need to ask this question. Do I know of a time when I have offended on purpose or on accident, but I have never, ever tried to make that right?
Spirit of the living God. You have the permission to speak to us about how we go about making it right in your way. And then I invite you to think about this question. Is there someone that I need to reconcile with? To make friends with?